Let there be light, and there was. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for spending part of your spring break here with us at Life Church. If you're watching online, hope you're enjoying spring break and still getting a little bit of church in. But thanks for being here, especially if it's your first time here with us today. Uh, before we get into today's message, one item that we want to have, one announcement we have, is that this Friday at 7 p.m. here at Life Church, a famous Christian artist by the name of Britt Nicole will be performing here at Life Church. And so if you maybe you want to have a date night or have a, a night out with friends, uh, bring your kids, uh, whatever you want to do, come join us on Friday night here at Life Church with Britt Nicole. Uh, there's three ways you can get your tickets for that concert and join us. Uh, one would be you can go out to the cafe after service if you're here in person, uh, and you can go get tickets from Jennifer. They're only $10 a piece. Uh, or you can go to the cafe throughout the week, uh, and you can buy them that way. Or if you don't want to do either of those options, you can go to our app under the events tab, and you can buy the tickets that way as well. But either way, we want to invite you Friday night to come worship with your family, come worship with us uh, for the Brit Nicole concert. All right. So walking into today, we're in week three of Easter People. And a quick little recap uh, to bring everyone up to speed on what Easter People is. So the idea behind the sermon series is that Jesus comes into the life of someone and he transforms them. So, so what is the storyline? What does it look like to live a resurrected life? And Mike kicked us off week one and we talked about Mary Magdalene. And we talked about who she was before she met Jesus, her whole testimony, her story, how she's the first person to go back and say he's risen. And then the next week we talked about Peter, well, Simon, Simon Barjona, and we talked about how Jesus looked at Simon and saw Peter. He saw not just a fisherman, he saw a fisher of men. And this week we're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea. How many of you have heard of Joseph of Arimathea? It's okay if you don't, raise your hands. All right. Good. That's why we're going to talk about it today. I was playing basketball at the Y last week, and I told the guys that that's who I was going to be talking about. And they're like, who? And I'm like, yeah, you should probably just come so we can talk about this and make it a lot easier for you. But again, we have an opportunity to talk about a, a biblical character who doesn't take much spotlight. But what's interesting about Joseph of Arimathea is he's actually mentioned in all four Gospels. So there's a lot to say about this man in such little text of Scripture. There's only roughly four verses that you have in each gospel about him. And so with Joseph of Arimathea, very much different than Peter, I would say, is that he wasn't a man of words, right? You remember last week we talked about how Peter made a profession that Jesus was the Messiah, and when push came to shove, all of his actions kind of fell short. Therefore, his words fell short. But what we'll find this week, I think, with Joseph of Arimathea is that he didn't have a lot of words, but he took action. He took action and did the things that he knew that he could do. He wasn't in the spotlight, but he still played a very pivotal role in the faith that we have today and as far as the burial of Jesus goes. And so that's what we're going to be landing on for today on week three. Now, I want to set the stage so we can kind of have a little bit of context with who Joseph is, because I think it's important that you understand the context of Scripture. And so if you can backtrack to what we consider Good Friday, this is where and the only time we find really Joseph being mentioned by his name. It's a Good Friday after Jesus had just died on the cross. So backing up in the order of events and, and into a little bit of last week, Thursday, Jesus celebrated the Passover with the disciples. He broke bread with them. He took communion with them. 
And then Peter goes on later Thursday evening, that same night, and denies him three times. Then Jesus is handed off into the the Sanhedrin, into the government of Rome, and they make the decision to crucify him. That happens, the crucifixion happens on Friday. Now, why would I say that? Well, the Gospels tell us that Friday in Jewish culture is very important because it was known as the day of preparation. And in order for us to understand this, the day of preparation was the the things and the time set aside where Jews traditionally would get everything prepared entering into the Sabbath, which would have been the day of rest, the holy day, to do nothing on Saturday. So they had to prepare everything. They had to prepare food, handle all their business, the animals, all this stuff, whatever was happening inside of their family. It all had to be settled before the sun went down on Friday because that's when the Passover, excuse me, it's when the Sabbath began to be observed. So, I find this interesting for another reason. Not only is it really big in Jewish culture for them to have celebrated this or taken uh, part in the day of preparation, but Jesus, on the day of preparation, prepared his body for a death and a resurrection that was to come. I just find it interesting that of all the days it could have been, it was on this day, and then the day that we don't hear from him was the Sabbath, and then we have what we know as Easter Sunday through all these series of events. But again, put yourself here, where we read Joseph. It's at the burial, so after the crucifixion. So that's just going to set the stage a little bit. And then today, we're going to go into Scripture. Again, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. But I want us to look at John and Luke specifically for what I think we need to, we need to discuss. And so we're going to be first in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. Again, only a few verses. And then I want you to put your finger on Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to, uh, through 51. So John's going to give a little portrayal of who Joseph is, and then I'm going to use Luke, which is another account of Joseph, to supplement, again, what I think we need to learn from today. So if you you would, turn your Bibles, John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it will be on the screen for you. John 19, verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came back and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So to summarize all of that very quick, here's Joseph. He asked for the body of Jesus with Nicodemus. They bury it there, proper Jewish burial. Good to go. Now we're going to supplement Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51 within this text because the Gospels uh, mention it this way. And I think it's important. Luke 23, verses 50 through 51 says this. In verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, the reason we bring Luke into this is to continue to paint a picture of the kind of man that Joseph would have been, because this helps us relate some, right? So he would have been a good and righteous man. Now, Think about a business. Anybody ever hired a contractor to do work for you? 
Okay, how many times did the work go exactly as planned? No, okay, maybe just me. I've hired contractors before that had good reputations. I've looked at their reviews, I've looked at their pictures and the evidence of the things they've done, and, and you know, to get the things I need done that I can't do, I look to their reputation to try to find the best company for the job. Their reputation, they say, precedes us sometimes, and if you're looking for a company that has a good reputation, you're gonna go do your research and see, are they worth it? How many of you have had a, a bad contractor? Yep, me too. Probably because I didn't do my research and it was just out of trust. The point is this, if you're looking for someone who has a good reputation, oftentimes that comes from someone who's willing to have integrity, who's willing to do the job the right way regardless of whether uh, people are looking or not. Like I have a problem when I hire a contractor now that I wanna watch everything they're doing. I'm that guy, sorry contractors if you're in here. I breathe on their back to make sure they're doing all the things right. But I've had people that didn't do it right and I feel like I gotta be in control and make sure this person has the right reputation. There's, only, there's really nothing I can do, but if they're, if they're reputable, they'll just do the right thing. And this is a lot about Joseph, a lot about his character, but you would say, how did he have, how did he have integrity, though? Here's a Jewish man on the council that sent Jesus to be crucified. How's that integrity? How's that doing the right thing? Well, we'll continue to discuss more about how he did have integrity later on, but the other thing it says is that he was a righteous man. So not only was he good, he was righteous. Now, if he's on a member of this council, the Sanhedrin, as it's called, how can that be considered a righteous person? Doing the right thing, huh? Well, it didn't seem like they did, but here's a man that regardless of the circumstances around him, chose to do the right thing. Regardless of the pressure that he faced, the, uh, the people that were around him and the place that he was in, he was righteous, not just in his role in the council, but to be considered righteous by God's own word would mean that you have to have this reputation that in your entire life and everything that you do, you're unwavering, you're honored, you're respected. You know, you're someone who's grounded. So regardless of the people that was influencing him or around him in one area of life, he was still righteous in the other areas of life. And this plays a big role in who Joseph is and who we read about Joseph being. But if you know about his status and you know about his role, especially in the Sanhedrin or this council, you have to remember that the role that he played would have been the thoughts in his mind would have likely been dismissed. Right? Think about a man, a man who's in the, in the council to vote that Jesus would be a false messiah, the man who says, maybe he could be. Because it says he did not consent to the council's decision. So what would have been going on with the, of a, a person with his status, what would have been going on in his mind? I want, you to think about, I want you to think about that. And I also want you to think about the fact that Nicodemus is the person who's gonna accompany him on this journey. You'll read about Nicodemus in scripture, how he goes to Jesus at night and he asks all these questions. Jesus, or Nicodemus, excuse me, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus taught the Jewish law. He didn't sway from left to right. So for this man to also go to Jesus and say, I need you to tell me some things, meant that he also was probably really internally struggling with, man, like we're saying all this stuff about Jesus, but what if it really is him? And these two people are gonna join together and they're gonna do one of the most bold things that we read about in scripture uh, with one another. What they did though, before they take the body of Jesus, before they do all of this stuff, there was a plot a plot to kill Jesus. 
and the people that were plotting this was the council. What I find interesting about this council is that not only were they plotting to kill Jesus, when they first brought him before the council, you know what their decision was? Can't find fault in this man. They couldn't find anything wrong, but then they have to bring him before the council again. And you know what's interesting? The Pharisees that are amongst the Sanhedrin, the high priest who's among the Sanhedrin, the members that are appointed in this council, the one thing they have against Jesus is two men who bear false witness. The only evidence that they had was based on a violation of one of the original Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness. But they were persuaded. They were convinced by this, these two false testimonies that Jesus deserved death. They were convinced that by the people around them, that's what he deserved. And that's the decision that they had to make. But I want us to consider this. This is something I was just talking with someone after first service about too, that I have to settle in myself still. I think we all need to think about. You know, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, there's the great white horse, and you, if you've read Revelation for the first time through, you're like, oh, there he is. Let's follow him. But it's deceiving. That's not who you're waiting for. Right? That's not the right thing. Well, put yourself in Jewish culture. If you're in this council, and you believe, and you've been taught, the Messiah will be this, and the Messiah will do that, think about it. You want to have a king of kings, a wise counselor, all these attributes of a, of a Messiah, and here's Jesus. Here's a lowly man with no place to lay his head. Doing all of these miracles, maybe it's magic. Maybe it's not really what we think it is. Or what about the fact that he's sitting with sinners, and he's breaking bread with them, and he's reclining a table with them. Or what about when this king comes and washes the feet of these disciples, these sinful people? This is what I had to settle. Are you really going to say that that's your Messiah? Like, this is what we have to settle within ourselves. Like, do you really believe in who he is? You're going to have to spend time processing that with God. And only God could reveal that to you. But here's the reality. Here's the context of, 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 of the Sanhedrin. A lot of them were defensive because of their religion, because of the things that they were taught, that they missed out on a Messiah. But here's a man who was willing to stand up for Jesus. And this is the first pivotal moment, I think, that we see in the story of Joseph. Is imagine you have a group, and they say, and Jesus is before you, and they say, what do we do with him? You see, part of their job, not only to uphold the law, was to take people proclaiming to be the Messiah and put them to death. They would try them in a the, in the govern, governing body, in a judicial system. And Jesus says, he's this, so he's before you. There's a whole group of people around you. And they all say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then there's you. The vote comes to you. All eyes are on you. And you say, don't. <laughs> Imagine the target on your back in that moment. Imagine in your, in your life today, when you go against the decision of everyone else, what people are thinking about you. Imagine being in Joseph's position where he does not cast his vote or give his consent to crucify Jesus. Like, I think we all can probably relate with a time where we've been in a group of people and we've had to go against what we thought everybody else wanted for the sake of doing what was right. But then you have to realize that he didn't have this great, huge status in the Sanhedrin because if he did, the vote could have easily been swayed. The vote that he cast was not enough 
to save Jesus from dying on the cross. But he still had a vote. He still had a voice. He still had an opinion. But what about when it doesn't go our way? What about when the thing that we think is right and true, everyone else opposes? Are you really willing to go against the crowd for what you believe in? Are you really willing to stand against someone and still make that decision, knowing the repercussions to come? He could have faced death. Death for following a false Messiah as someone who's supposed to defend this idea. But you know what I think we need today would be more leaders like Joseph. I think we need more men to step up into roles and responsibilities, not just in your home, but in this world that would say, regardless of what these people over here think, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to appease the majority here. I'm trying to do what is right. I'm going to make decisions based on what I believe in to be true. Godly men is what we should be praying for, and we should be praying for the godly men already in leadership positions today so they can stand on what's right and what's true, and they don't get swayed by the opinions of the world or their own religion even. Why aren't we thinking through these things in today's world? We'll listen to a, a group of people who could promote us, but we won't listen to a God who can save us. Where's your direction in life? Who are you seeking? Because at the end of the day, I'd have to say this. So last week, Peter, we talked about Peter. When Jesus looked at Simon, the fisherman, he saw Peter, the fisher of men. I would say that Joseph looked at Jesus here and saw the Messiah. He saw something that he knew was right, and he put his life on the line by simply casting a vote. But you know what he didn't let sway him? Religion, opinion, the world. See, religion, I think, confuses people over time, especially if you're, if you're new to your faith or, or maybe you've fallen out of, of this relationship and you're trying to figure out your relationship with Jesus again, you've been hurt by the church, whatever that is. A lot of time we get so caught up in religion that we forget about that relationship. The problem with religion that I have, and this is my opinion, maybe some of you can relate to this, but religion tries to answer all of your questions. It tries to say, because you think this, it's just this, and it's this, and it's this. It's black and white. But it's black and white in an area where there's, you can't put faith into a box. You can't put everybody's questions in a box and say, well, it's this or this. And know the other problem that, that I have with it is that when you get caught up in a religious mentality, you prevent people from seeking God. Now, one of my greatest personal fears is that I would tell people what they have to do and answer their questions and give them solutions to their problem and make them into people that I think they should be rather than just letting them sort that out with God in the first place. You know the problem that we do as the church is that we become the savior for someone else's problems rather than leading them to the savior that they need. We become too religious when we think we've got to figure everything out for everyone. Joseph didn't let that get in his way. He knew what it was that he had to do. It's all that he could do in the moment. And he made the decision to publicly declare Jesus could be the Messiah. But the other thing that we do is if we're not seeking God and we're trying to get all of these answers on our own, you have to consider where's your heart then? What is it that we really want to seek at the end of the day? What is it that we think we really need for our salvation? Is it to, to answer the temporary questions here? Is it to answer the whys? Because let's face it, like, there's a lot of whys. Like, I don't understand this. I don't get it. 
It doesn't make sense to me. But we become almost more pursuant of that why when we should just be seeking the God that knows the why and putting our faith in him. See, it gets distracting. And then we become swayed by the opinions and the beliefs of other people that we forget where we were in the beginning with the relationship with Jesus. Well, then you might say, how could all of that, all of this, just this decision, how does that make him a disciple? Because scripture said he was a disciple, but for fear of the Jews. How was he a disciple? Well, the first thing I think we need to understand is a disciple is a follower, a learner, or someone who's willing to be taught by someone else and adhere to their teachings. You know, the Jews would have been considered disciples of Moses, and we, obviously, as believers, would be followers of Christ. And, and so how is this man considered a follower of Christ? You know, Jesus, in Luke chapter 14, talks about weighing the cost. Like, you have to settle something before you're going to actually follow him. In Luke chapter 14, you can go back and read this. Jesus is giving a speech, and again, it contradicts what the Pharisees thought. This is the woe to you Pharisees type speech. He says, if you want to follow me, you know what you're going to have to do? You have to weigh the cost of me. Meaning, and he says this, which I find so interesting. You better hate your father. You better hate your mother. You better hate your family members. What? What does that mean? It means that if there's anything that's going to get in the way of your relationship with Jesus, you better be willing to move it aside because he's the only thing that matters. And he says, if you can't do that, you can't follow him. Now, you want to try to bring those people along with you, so it makes life a lot easier. But at the end of the day, what are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? Look what Joseph gave up. The second he made that vote in the council, you think they were like, hey, can't wait to have you back next week. No. There was a chance that he was facing death. But then you might say, well, but still, a disciple? Well, the question I guess you have to ask is, do you have to say that you believe in Jesus in order to have salvation. Now, there's scripture that would say you need to speak it with your mouth. But there's also scripture that talks to us about how even if you profess it, sometimes if it's not in your heart, it's not about the words you say, but it's about doing the will of the Father. Jesus said, he said, if you acknowledge me before man, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. But Jesus, in that context, didn't say with words. But it's not about the words. It's not really about the actions, but what about when you don't have the words? Do actions make up, make up for it? My opinion is yes, because it comes from here. Because of the settling in your heart, you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We don't read Joseph saying it here, but I'm also gonna say this. I personally believe you should profess your faith out loud with your mouth. You know why? Because you don't face the opposition that Joseph faced. You're not gonna die by saying you believe. You're not gonna be around people every day that are gonna put you to a torturous death because of your belief in Jesus. We don't, or we can't compare to Joseph in that regard. Now, there may be a day that it comes, but then it goes on, the Gospels and, and the other writers of the other epistles of Scripture would tell us, like, be willing to lay your life down. But today, is your life on the line for saying that you believe? And have you settled it within your heart? And can it not be because of your actions? Because sometimes this is where we get lost. I don't know what to say to people. I, how do you go reach one of your lost family members? How, how do you tell them they need Jesus without saying, you need Jesus? Is my profession of faith gonna save you? 
Maybe my testimony might bring you to a realization like, oh, maybe I need that. But at the end of the day, my opinion, the way I think, or the things that I've settled with God does not mean that someone has to come to their faith the same way. But you know what? By the way that I live, I think they'd hear, hear a lot more about Jesus that way. So here's my question. When people look at you, what do they see? Remember Peter, I believe in you. No actions to translate until he receives the Holy Spirit, until he settles things in his own heart. But here's Joseph, he doesn't say anything. But he goes and he does what's noble. He goes and he does the thing that could lead to persecution all because of what's happening in here. He's settling in his own heart that Jesus is going to do the things that he said he would do. It's gonna cost us something. And at the end of the day, we have to be willing to say, are we willing to give it all up for him? But the second biggest moment, I think, in Joseph's life, the second most pivotal moment would be when he then goes and he asks Pilate for the body. Again, context. You hear that said, but what does that mean? Not only did you just make a public decision to defend Jesus in one arena of life, what about over here? You're now going and asking for the body of the person who claimed to be the Messiah? That's action. That's action that's backed up by what's going on in here. This is the second biggest moment, I think, in his life. Think about this in, a, in context of relationship, okay? We all have been in circles of people, maybe whether that's when you're in college or whether that's you meet new friends at work or whatever it is. You watch these circles of people get together. And when the new person comes in, they start to talk like them. They take up the same phrases, the same terminology. They start, you know, speaking the same way as one another. Like we mimic each other's words. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. Sometimes it can be wrong. But it's not always. But have you ever had a job or on the, you know, you ever had a job where you have to, to shadow a supervisor? You ever had a job where you don't know what you're supposed to do, so you've got to watch someone, say, all right, we're going to go through A, and then after A, we'll do B, and then C, and we'll go all the way through Z, and you don't know what you're supposed to do, so all you can do, instead of talking about it, is just, okay, I have to do A, and then I guess I have to do B, and then I guess I can get to C. You mimic their actions to get to the result, and then over time, you learn, if job permitting, if you're able to do it in a unique way that works easier for you to still accomplish the same thing. Like, you hear this? Like sometimes we mimic what others have done before us, not by just word, but sometimes by action. And so again, do people see that in us? Do people see that our actions add up with we're disciples? And I'm just gonna give you my personal opinion right now. I think that if you have to say, oh no, I can't be bad because I'm a Christian, I'm gonna say check your hearts. This is the sad thing. There's people that will sit amongst the church. There's people who will meet you in the marketplaces and say, yes, I'm a Christian. The evidence of their life doesn't stack up to it. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that these people are going to hell or these people don't have faith. Or, you know, I'm not gonna say any of that, but what I'm gonna say is you can't measure the heart of a believer. You can't measure anyone's heart, but you can see the actions of their life. You can see the evidence of what you believe in. It should translate from what you said you believe in. Now, this is the other thing that I think we have to kind of settle on is Joseph goes and publicly says, I'm gonna take this body down. He's gonna go with Nicodemus, ask for the body, and he's gonna bring it down. Now, I want to paint a picture here. I know it's kind of morbid, but it's true. Scripture says 
They go to Pilate, they ask for the body. Pilate gives them the body, they take the body, and they bury it. Have you ever thought about what that would mean? What do you think they saw when they went up to the cross? Have you really, like, you know, like there's pictures that people paint, and these pictures that people paint, they're like, oh, it's reflective, like, man, I'm a sinner. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't do justice to what, if you put yourself in Joseph and Nicodemus' shoes, what you would have seen on that cross. You know what Isaiah said it would be? He would be so badly disfigured that he would not be recognizable as the man that he was. That's how bad he was beaten, beyond all human recognition. And not only that, if you've ever seen a body that's been dead for any amount of time, it starts to change color. The blood probably hadn't even dried. He died Friday afternoon. Remember, Passover, sorry, Sabbath is coming, so they only have a few hours to make sure they can give him this proper burial. So imagine that's your sight. You asked for the body, but here you are, awestruck. The Savior of the world is dying. He's dead on a cross. Put yourself in those shoes. You're still going to go through with this, right? Because the Romans would have left him on the tree. They would have let the vultures, other people, whatever you wanted to do with the body, you could do with it. They said, this is what we're going to do. They're going to give him a proper Jewish burial. But you know how you got him off the tree? You ever thought about that? They didn't just knock the tree down. You had to climb up. It says, some people believe you'd have to climb to the back of the cross. And then you know what you had to do? Take the nails out of his hands. You ever try to take a nail out of a piece of wood, let alone a body? You ever taken nails out of his feet? And then how are you not going to let his body fall down? You ever held up dead weight before? You think of the logistics of this? This is bold. That's all they knew how to do. You know, some people believe that they would wrap linen around them and come up with a system of how to hoist them down slowly to the ground, but it still doesn't change what you have to do to give him a proper burial, the only thing you can do. But the other thing in Jewish culture, again, that I, I think is interesting here, is that touching a corpse was caused to make you unclean. If you were unclean, it was huge in Jewish culture because unclean meant you were defiled. You know what defilement means? Defilement means that you can no longer be in community with people. You have to isolate yourself for X amount of time. And if Israel would continue to do this, it would have removed God from dwelling with them. Defilement was everything for these Jewish people. So in one sense, they're doing the only thing they know, the Jewish culture and customs, but they're willing to say, I'm willing to do anything for this man. I'm willing to make myself unclean to do what's right. The other thing that I find interesting is the tree. Now, it didn't look like this, but I forgot first service there was an entire tree next to me. <laughs> There's an entire tree next to me. And first it looked like a cross. But the correlation from a tree is this. In the beginning, in Genesis, Adam and Eve, the curse was brought because they ate from the, fr from the fruit of a tree. The redemption of humanity was on the cross when Jesus died in our place when his blood was poured out on a tree. You can read scripture in different translations talk about what this cross was. It was a tree. We were redeemed because he was put on a tree, but you know its significance about it? In Jewish culture, if you died or you were hung on a tree, you know what you were considered? Cursed. We were cursed in the beginning. He bore the curse for us. He took the place of us. Who should have been on that cross? Me. Me. I deserved that. There's days where I'm like, no, I still deserve that. 
Look at the disciples to be martyred in their faith. We deserve that place. And he said, no, I'll take that curse for you. All you've got to do is believe that I'm going to do the things that are to come. That's where the disciples weren't. They weren't taking him off the tree. We don't read that. There were, there were some of them that were there. But he had to step up. This is part of the discipleship. He did the only thing he knew how to do when other people couldn't. He stepped up to perform. You don't have to be in the spotlight to make a huge difference, guys. You watch March Madness right now, some of these guys coming off the bench, putting up triple doubles, you know, making a difference for their team. You don't have to be a starter in the game to make a difference for your team or for the mission. This man has four verses almost in just each gospel. That's it. But what he did made a difference, not only in, in the kingdom, but for us today, because we have a story of a man who did this. We can, we can learn from who Jesus was to him and his story and how that can affect us going forward. But the other thing that he did, or they did, Nicodemus and Joseph, is they weighed the cost of doing all of this. You're not weighing the cost isn't just about you willing to give up, you know, your family, your dreams, your hopes. They physically weighed the cost. The tomb is credited with being Joseph's family's tomb. He gave up a tomb. Typically, people were buried in a, in a hole with rocks thrown on top of them. That was a typical burial. Especially for, for a, a criminal like Jesus, he wouldn't have deserved this noble burial. Joseph gave up his tomb, and he gave the linen, and he gave his time to go get Jesus off the cross and give him a proper burial. You know what it says Nicodemus brought? It says he brought 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh, okay? That's a lot. You essential oil people, it usually comes in like 0.2 ounces. That's a lot of essential oils. That would make your business boom. And there was a study by Wake Forest that said that because of the scarcity of getting myrrh, it's not as easy as it is today, obviously. Wake Forest study said that that myrrh could have been worth $4,000 per pound. That's a lot of money in today's world. And he gave that up back then. The Pharisee gave that up to do what was right for the Messiah. If you put yourself in that context, we'd easily say, I'd give it all up too. But I think we really need to be careful when we answer that question. Do you really know the cost of what it's going to take to follow Jesus? I'm going to invite the worship team up as I end with this. When everything went silent, when it was dark, they buried Jesus in the tomb. Then what? You, you had to roll a stone, which likely wasn't for one person. Part of the reason they would, they would put someone in a tomb like this is because they didn't want the enemy to see their bodies and defile it, so they would hide them away. The stone isn't small. And there is belief that there could have been servants there helping Joseph and Nicodemus move this stone. But you know what the Pharisees wanted? You know what Rome wanted? They wanted to make sure it was sealed. So not only did they move this stone in front of the tomb, they sealed it shut. And not only did they seal the stone shut, they placed guards there to make sure nothing could happen to it. It's all they knew how to do. Joseph said, I'm just gonna put it there. Do you think about the faith it would have taken Joseph to know I'm gonna put this tomb here. I know they're gonna seal it up and I know they're gonna put guards there to think that that tomb could be moved 
The whole point of what they were doing was making sure no one could tamper with this. Only by the hand of God could any of this ever happen. Joseph's actions on Friday, do you think he knew what Sunday was gonna be? But in faith, imagine, you take action today and you hear what everybody's saying, Jesus, he's risen. He's not there anymore. How? I believe that I could see a Sunday. Your actions today will affect things in the future and the lives of people around you. When you don't know what to do, take the next step. Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes that's all God's asking for us. It's not always these big, you know, monumental moments in life. Sometimes it's just, what do you have in front of you? Do something with it. That's a challenge for us all. Is that we don't know what tomorrow would bring. In all four Gospels, we read about Joseph. But if, if you were to be asked today what you believe in, have you really settled in what you believe in? And are you willing to defend or even die for what you said you believe in? I, can, I encourage you to go back and look at the story in the Gospels of Joseph of Arimathea as a testament of a man who in the midst of the world said, I'm gonna stand firm, who in the midst of uncertainty said, I'm gonna do, and in the midst of it all was changed by Jesus. So will you please stand so I can pray for you. God, there are so many times in our lives we don't have words. We know that deep down in our heart there's something we wanna do. We don't even know what to do sometimes. I pray that you would reveal to each unique individual in this room today that there is a unique gift and unique calling that you have placed upon them, Lord. To not try to think about taking care of it all because you already did that. Let us be disciples in the way that we live and by the actions that we take. Lord, if each one of us could realize that we are on our own mission for you, I can't imagine the impact we could make in the lives of other people. I pray that you would continue to settle those things in our heart. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't know, what we do know is that you're there. And at the end of the day, our works are just a cause of obedience because you went and you did everything for us. Thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you for your grace. Knowing that we would falter, you sent us your son. Let us be like Joseph and take the next step even when we don't see it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.